guess I was eager to come up and, and share the message with you. Um, one thing I love, I love many, 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 many things about our elders, but I love that we're so mannish. Um, if we have our elder retreat, there's always some guy doing push-ups or some guy with a kettlebell and, and doing their, their thing there. Um, but one thing we do, and it's not the secret, there is a secret elder handshake, but this is not the secret elder handshake, but we, uh, you know, between the scripture reading and, and the sermon, try to do the little fist bump as we're coming up and down the stairs, and I just think that's cool. So um, that has nothing to do with this morning. So, all right, if I were to ask all of you, in fact, I want you to do this, I want you to write this down on your notes. Give me a list of things, let's, let's do three so you don't, uh, you know, go down the page or anything, but give me a list of things a person must absolutely get right in this life. Go ahead, just write three things. Three things a person must absolutely get right in this life. Give you a few, few moments. It's a heavy question. Okay, now take, take time, hopefully everyone's done. If you're not, I'm sorry. Um, Look at the list of the people on either side of you and see if you have matching lists. You kind of tell by the laughter that something's going on, okay. Okay, how many of you had the matching identical list with the person next to you? Anyone? All right, well, that, that, that answers the question. There are many reasons why that is true. You know, we're, let's say, in different seasons of life. So let's say someone writes down, you need to get it right when choosing a spouse, okay? Now, that, that's an important, you know, thing, and, and, and that's a top priority, but I'm pretty certain the average 10-year-old in the room here did not put that down on their list. Different seasons of life. You know, maybe we have kind of the, the more driven or the more ambitious people, and they wrote something down like, you need to get it right when choosing a career or a job. But then we have kind of the, the less ambitious, the lazy people, the, uh, or, the, uh, you know, or the, the artists who are just kind of, uh, yeah, whatever, man, you know, you just kind of drift from job to job or something like that. I am not digging a hole, Chris Treadway. Um, because I am one of those artists, as they say. You know, someone might put down, you know, maybe the 10-year-olds put down something like, do it right when it comes to passing fifth grade. You know, most of us don't necessarily want to put something like that down if we've already passed fifth grade. You know, we can go on and on with kind of this, this fictional list, but if they exist, I would hope that most of us would put down, you need to get it right when it comes to knowing and understanding who Jesus is. His person, his character, his mission, his word, his power, his desires, his loves, his hates, and we could go on and on with that. And I would also hope in recognizing kind of the importance of this it would at least be in the top one of everybody's list. Getting the spouse right is really important. It's a really big deal. Marriage is hard with the right person. Getting the job is important. 
No doubt about it. Passing the fifth grade, also important. But getting Jesus right is infinitely more important. In fact, it is the most important issue of the universe. And so we're kind of going to look today, this morning, at kind of a Jewish official from Galilee in our passage this morning and see if he gets Jesus right. And we will do this kind of by starting off by kind of looking at two, what I'm going to call potential difficulties. There are, they're not difficulties on a deeper read and a further information kind of thing, but kind of on a surface reading, they could be. So I'll explain why they are not, and then we'll kind of land the plane, so to speak, on some points of application at the end. Some of you are used to my preaching and you think, where are the blanks? Because usually I have about 95 places to fill in things. Uh, We're going to do things a little differently. This is narrative, and so we're just going to kind of walk through the passage, and, uh, and you follow along, and you have the freedom to write down whatever you wish. All right, so the first potential difficulty that we're looking at this morning is this, the non-welcome welcome. Okay, the non-welcome welcome. Starting in verse 43, it says, after two days he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. Now notice first that Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Okay? Quiz question. Jesus' hometown was? Nazareth. Very good. Which was located in the region of? Galilee. Very good. You have Galilee of the north, Judea to the south. And so this, this statement that Jesus says, though, a prophet is not welcome in his country, is not a brand new statement from Jesus. As you know, he said it before at least a couple of times. And we're going to look at another instance in a second. But notice verse 45 in our passage says this. So when he came to Galilee, his hometown, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, didn't he just say in the verse before that, that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown? Jesus wasn't talking about Isaiah or Jeremiah or something like that. Jesus himself was a prophet. He did accurately predict the future. So he was more than a prophet, of course, but he was a prophet. So what's going on here with his hometown welcoming him? That could be a potential problem. Was Jesus confused? Well, Jesus was not confused. He comes into his hometown and they say, welcome, come on in. But then as we further look into the passage, we're going to see that it is not a problem at all. So let's turn over to Matthew chapter 13. It's going to really give us some good answers. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Matthew 13, and we're going to look at verses 53 through 58. Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. You follow along, and I will, uh, I'll read. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? 
and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus in this case is in Nazareth. He's teaching in the synagogue. And the people's reaction to his teaching and miracles is, how is it possible he can say these things and do these things? He's just a man. And then they kind of, uh, you know, they, they kind of say, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? And they then kind of proceed to kind of lay out the evidence for, for why they've come to this conclusion. They say that, you know, he is a son. They said, you know, Mary's here, that sort of thing. So he's been born of human parents. He has brothers and sisters, and so he's a sibling. He's not some angelic creature. He is a man. And verse 57 says then that they took offense at him. Now, why? That seems kind of strange. How does, he, how does he get all this wisdom? How does he do these mighty things? I'm mad. What kind of a reaction is that? Well, they're so hung up on their false conclusion of who Jesus was, he's only a human, it didn't jibe with who he really was, the Son of God. And that made them angry. Because they concluded he was a man, they could not honor or welcome him as the Savior of the world. Now, back to our passage, we pretty much kind of see the same situation here. The Galileans in this passage did not come to the false conclusion that Jesus was only a human, but they did come to the false conclusion that Jesus was only worthy of their welcome because he was a miracle worker. Verse 45 says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, you would think if there were a people who really could understand who Jesus is, it would be the Galileans, aka the Jews. I mean, they had the prophecies, they had the feasts, they had the sacrificial system, literally everything about their culture and their scripture pointed to who Jesus was. And they should have welcomed him, not because he performed miracles, but because they concluded he was the savior of the world, just like the Samaritans did earlier in this chapter that we looked at last week. I love that. They heard his words and said, he is indeed the savior of the world. But this is kind of a recurring theme in John, isn't it? That by and large, Jesus was rejected by his people. John 1.11 says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not trust them because he knew they were only accepting him for what he could do and not for who he was. And this is a false conclusion from the Galileans, but it's not just an indictment on them, is it? It's not just an indictment on the Jewish people necessarily. I mean, we Gentiles are, we're just not doing so hot ourselves, are we? 
And what I mean by that is at this very moment, some of the largest churches worldwide are filled with people who only welcome Jesus because of what he can do and not because of what he is. Savior of the world for those churches or for those individuals basically just translate as, please fix my life. Fix my job problems, Lord. Fix my money problems, Lord. Fix my relationships problems, Lord. Fix all the negative consequences from my foolish decisions, Lord. Fix my health problems, and, and on and on and on it goes. People who make the false conclusion about Jesus that he is only worthy of our attention because of what he does whether Jew or Gentile, who's making that conclusion, are kind of like royalty in their bedchambers, ringing the bell of prayer, waiting on Jesus as the help to show up with their breakfast or to help them get their clothes on. And folks, Jesus is not the help. So the the potential difficulty is solved when we see that the Galileans welcoming Jesus were truly dishonoring Jesus because they were not welcoming him for who he really is. And just to get a tongue twister around, it was a non-welcoming welcoming or something like that. All right, the second potential difficulty is this, and that is the non-belief belief. In the larger part of our passage, we have this account of an official in Galilee who wants Jesus to heal his son. In the story, Jesus warns the official not to have false belief by seeking after signs and wonders only. The official seems to ignore the warning, which is not a good thing to do. But Jesus does something kind of strange and rewards the man with a miracle. So what is going on here? Why does Jesus reward him with a miracle when he kind of just ignores the warning to chase after miracles and signs and things like that, and he just kind of presses into it? Well, we don't know a lot about this official from the text. He is a servant of a king or a ruler. That's what official means in the Greek. Since he is in Galilee, he probably serves in the court of Herod Antipas, which basically, you know, is the guy who killed John the Baptist. Uh, married his sister, all kinds of fun things like that, a wicked, wicked, wicked king. He is from Capernaum. Uh, He goes up to Cana, which uh, we as Americans think go up means on the map, but in this case, he's going down southwest about 15 miles from Capernaum, which is up at the top of Sea of Galilee. Excuse me, I always do things as I'm looking, and down to uh, Cana, which is about 15 miles southwest, but it's uh, Sea of Galilee is about 700 some so feet below sea level, and it's very hilly over here, so when they say go up, they literally mean you're going up or going down, versus a map, we'd say, no, he's going down. So he's going down, which is about 15 miles, which is slightly less than a day's travel. Day's travel was 20 to 25 miles in that time, and so 15 miles southwest to, to, uh, to Cana, 
And he goes up to Cana because he has a son who is ill. The only thing we know is to the point of death. And Jesus, the miracle worker, is in Cana. Now, it's not hard to sympathize with this man, especially if you're a parent. I mean, to have your kids sick to the point of death would make any parent, I would hope, pretty desperate. And to hear that there's kind of maybe someone a little less than a day's journey away who speaks and sickness goes away, we can absolutely understand how he would just, you know, pack up the, the donkey right now, let's go, kind of situation. So we, we can kind of empathize with his situation. But when he comes to Jesus, Jesus uses that moment as an opportunity to not only rebuke him, but the Galileans. Jesus says in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You think he's speaking, because it says he speaks to the official, but that word you there is in the plural. And so what Jesus basically is doing is he's broadcasting a warning. He is, he is speaking to the official in front of him, but he's also warning anyone who's in, within earshot of what Jesus is saying. And since they are gathering around him due to his rock, rock star status in a lot of ways, I'm sure there are probably just a lot of people right there. And basically what he's saying is pursuing after wonders and after signs and after miracles is not genuine faith. It's not a belief that honors Christ. And here's why. The purpose of the signs throughout the book of John has been for others to treasure Christ, right? That's really only been the purpose. It's miraculous, it's wonderful, it's amazing, it defies natural law and and those kinds of things, but the end result ought to always be what an amazing Savior. When a person only treasures the signs, unfortunately, they go against God's purposes for those signs. And genuine faith or belief never goes against the purposes of God. It doesn't. So if God's purposes for signs and wonders is for Christ to be treasured, and all people do is treasure the signs and wonders, they're going against God's purposes for those things. I like what John Piper said. He said, unbelievers don't worship God, they use God. So what does this man do with Jesus' warning? Jesus says this, and what does he do? Well, at first he ignores it. You can try to hem all around and say, well, he kind of gets this and kind of that sort of thing. No, he he flat out ignores it because in verse 49 it says, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. It's kind of like, don't bother me with a lecture on signs and wonders, Lord. I mean, can't you see that I'm desperate here? Come to Capernaum and heal him before he dies. Didn't you hear me the first time I said it? Because this is the second time he says it. Kind of feel like we're talking past each other, Jesus. And so if Jesus' warning to the man was some kind of test, at this point the official is not doing so well, right? He is showing all the signs of demanding that Jesus do his bidding on his own terms. But things are about to change. And it's maybe because of Jesus' next statement, but I believe, it's not explicitly stated, but I believe genuine faith begins to stir in the heart of this man. Jesus says in verse 50, go, your son will live. And this statement truly is, I think, the hinge pinch 
pen for the whole passage. I think it truly is the thing that's holding everything together here because this man is now faced with a crossroads. Will he be like all the other Galileans and sail past what Jesus says and focus on what Jesus does? Yeah, I know, Jesus, you know, you say my son is healed, but come on, let's, you know, come on over, come up, come, come to my hometown and, and, and put your hand on him and I know he will be healed. Or will this man, who is pretty adamant that Jesus needs to come with him, forsake his plans and just do as Jesus says here, go for your son will live. Basically, will this person see Jesus as the sovereign Lord who says it and it happens no matter if the sovereign Lord is 15 miles or 15,000 miles from the situation? And I believe the latter happens. Verse 50 says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What a contrast from this desperate official in the previous verses, right? What an amazing contrast. What, what causes someone to just shift like that is all of a sudden he says, okay, and he goes. I think he became like the Samaritans. I think he embraced what Jesus said, even though he didn't see what Jesus did. And in doing so, he discovered, like they did, that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And the rest of this passage really confirms these things. Because it says in verse 53, it says, the father knew, you know, he, find, he, he gets there, he runs into his servants, he finds out the exact hour his son was healed or the fever had left him. And so he says, hey, that's, that's about exactly when Jesus said it was going to happen. And then in verse 53, it says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And then it goes on to say, and he himself believed in all his household. Now, the miracle in and of itself was a gift from the Lord, despite the official's unbelief. Okay, there was just this moment where it looked like this guy was just pursuing after signs and wonders like everybody else, and Jesus just goes, goes ahead and gives him a gimme, kind of just gives him the miracle. He says, your son will be healed. But I believe that it was the sovereign tool in the hand of Christ to bring this man to saving faith. Because you'll notice the official didn't grab his family and say, let's go back to Canaan and see what else he can do, kids. You know, doesn't the donkey have a limp? Let's bring the donkey to him. Or even better, let's go without the donkey and hear him say, your donkey's healed, go. You know, like a, like a sideshow. They did not need the excitement of signs and wonders to fill them and thrill them. They had the Savior. They had the Savior. And so this man, I believe, in the end, got Jesus right. I believe he got Jesus right. Now, three points of application and we are done. Point number one, getting Jesus right means submitting to what he says despite your desires or agendas. That's a mouthful. But getting Jesus right means submitting to what he says despite your desires or agendas. 
It would be, and this is something Robbie and I kind of back and forth with um, um, a few days ago. It would be a false conclusion to think that gifting the man with a miracle was somehow proof that Jesus is squishy. Because you could do that. You could say, well, you know, I'm kind of, you know, more um, Pentecostal or something like that. And, you know, I've just always been taught that it's okay to kind of pursue after signs and wonders and miracles and, and that sort of thing. And now you're telling me that Jesus is kind of warning them, but doesn't he kind of, you know, give the guy a miracle? So I can kind of do the same thing. I mean, you know, just trust that God will just give me my miracle, you know, or, or something along those lines. It would be a false conclusion to do that, to think that, you know, Jesus giving this man a miracle is somehow Jesus being squishy. The, the, the official is the one who changes. Notice that. Jesus does not change. It's the official that changes. The official is the one that requires correction. Jesus does not require correction. And again, the, the gifting of the miracle, I believe, was the sovereign tool Jesus used to make a worshiper out of this man. To make him understand that your satisfaction, your joy, your salvation, is, your hope is not in what I do, it's in who I am. And so don't ever conclude that sincerity somehow manipulates the heart of Jesus. That is not getting Jesus right. We first and foremost and always submit to Him. Point number two. Getting Jesus right is infinitely greater than seeing miracles on a regular basis. Getting Jesus right is infinitely better or greater, both, <laughs> than seeing miracles on a regular basis. Okay, so in the Thursday email, if you read it, I asked the question, if the Lord gave you the most wonderful life any human being on earth could ever have, okay? Jesus gave you the most wonderful life you could ever live, perfect family, perfect health, perfect wealth, perfect friends, perfect job, perfect church, on and on and on but did not give you himself, would you say no thank you? Would you say no thank you? Because folks over there just a little while ago, I was kind of swinging the sticks and hitting things is what I called playing the drums. And, and I've got a lovely problem with my right hand, got a little carpal tunnel going on. And so it gets really awkward to kind of hold the stick in a way that doesn't hurt and bizarre, this is not woe is me moment. But I would love to have perfectly healthy hands when I play the drums. I would love that. Pain is not fun. Some of you are in marriages where you were like, man, I'm really close to saying yes rather than no to that because I would really love a perfect husband right now. I would really love a perfect wife right now. I would really love perfect children right now. Some of you are disgruntled with your place of employment. Some of you don't like your car. There's reasons to be exasperated in this fallen world. But would you, if Jesus could possibly do that, I will give you the perfect life. You just don't get me. 
would you say no thanks? We saw in John 2 that the Jews were believing in Jesus because of the signs he was doing. And there's that one statement, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The miracle of a perfect life cannot be compared to the Lord entrusting himself to you. Do you imagine what a, can you just imagine what a privilege that is? What a wonder that is. What an amazing thing that is that the Lord, perfect, holy, majestic Son of God, entrusts himself to me? To suffer in this life for whatever reason, yet to have the Lord's ear is the most precious thing in the universe. It is. And so getting Jesus right is infinitely greater than seeing miracles on a regular basis. Last point. Getting Jesus right means others will get him right. Getting Jesus right means others will get him right. I love verse, 40, uh, 53, <laughs> verse 53. Um, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. It's kind of a bonus, you know? It's like, bonus? But that will happen. It may not happen immediately. It may not happen long-term or something like that. But, but generally... Getting Jesus right means you will tell of his greatness to those around you. And some will listen. Some will listen. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. And that's just a big description of get Jesus right. For by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. This official went home, told his family the reason the miracle took place, and the family clung to the reason. The family clung to the reason. And so as we seek as lovers of Christ and wanting to get him right in all things, in all that we say, in all that we do, in all that we think, in all that we plan, we want to get him right in all of those things. It's going to be evident to the people around us that whatever the result of what I'm saying right now, whatever the result of what I'm doing right now, whatever the result of these grand plans that we're putting together, whatever the result, it really doesn't matter. It's Jesus that matters. And so, like the official, in, in some ways, we too stand as a church at a crossroads. I hope that everyone I'm speaking to has Jesus right. You have read His Word, you have clinged to His Word, you have trusted in Him as Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, then I urge you. Get this right. You may get nothing else right in your entire life. Get this right. But if you have, you have placed your trust and your hope in Him, then we still, in many ways, stand at a crossroad of, will I 
get Jesus right in all things. And then we look at our habits, and we look at our free time, and we look at our decisions, and we look at our lives, and we look at the results of those things and say, am I getting Jesus right here? And so, let's stand at this crossroads together, let's hear what Christ says, and let's cling to Him and go. Let's cling to Him and go and be the people of God that God calls us to be. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to have the courage and the humility and the faith to respond to what we've heard this morning from your word. I pray, O oh God, that, there, that all of us, O oh Lord, if, we, if we're the type of people who are clinging to the signs and the wonders and the miracles, O oh God, and it just stops right there, and so we can't wait for the next conference, or we can't wait for the next you know, uh, this or that, the things that kind of juice us up and pump us up and, and those kinds of things. God, I pray that we would set that aside and quit doing that, Lord. Quit making those conclusions that this is the thing that encourages me. This is the thing that fills me up. This is the thing that thrills me. And Lord, I pray that we would open our Bibles and get into your word and find you there. And in finding you, Lord, I pray that we would conform ourselves to your image that your Holy Spirit would work in us to, to change us like this man in this story, Lord, that we will faithfully serve you, get you right in all things, and in doing so, I pray that coworkers and children and parents and grandparents and cousins and, and total strangers will see us in such a way that we can look back and say, yeah, this, the Lord did this great thing in my life, but Great thing aside, it's the Lord. It is the Lord. I want to follow after Him with all of my might, and since then, weeks down the road, months down the road, years down the road, since then, my entire office came to Christ. My children came to know Christ as Savior and Lord. My parents are saved. My cousins and whomever else that I've had the opportunity to just uh, show them who this Jesus is have, have changed. God, I pray that we will see much change in marriages, in hearts, in, in families, Lord, in individuals, God. I pray that we will see, Lord, what you can do when people say, I want to get Jesus right. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.